welcome back, everybody. Uh, another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast dedicated to infectious diseases. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Stewart. Uh, just want to thank all my new listeners. Uh, any kind of feedback, please let me know. I can be reached at uh, you make me sick pod at gmail.com. So, any requests or, like I said, feedback. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing polio and the polio virus. Uh, and poliomyelitis. Prior to that, though, uh, we'll do a little monkeypox update. Not really a whole lot uh, of movement in the monkeypox scene. It's actually starting to kind of go on this downward trajectory, which is great. Uh, vaccination probably in place, and uh, I think a lot of people are just more aware now of how it's being spread in certain communities where it's being spread. Uh, in the U.S. right now, we've got about 26,049 cases. I've only had two deaths from it, which is great. Uh, it's not great that people died, but the fact that it's that low, um, it's just nice that this was a, you know, a much less uh, virulent strain than other strains of monkeypox and monkeypox that we've seen in the past. So uh, one death was in Texas. The other one, uh, the most recent one, which is still probably about a month or so ago, was in Los Angeles. Uh, worldwide, there's about 70,420 confirmed cases, uh, but that's also slowing on the trajectory if you look. Uh, just kind of it trends, kind of peaked in August, and it started to decline. So uh, good news on the monkeypox front. Uh, so hopefully that just kind of peters out and hopefully disappears. I don't know if it will completely disappear, but at least get to the point where it's no longer uh, considered an epidemic. So that brings us to today's subject we're going to be discussing polio. Uh, wanted to kind of take a look at polio just because it's been in the news a little bit recently. Uh, I'll get to that uh, probably closer to the end of the podcast, talk about uh, cases that have shown up just in New York and worldwide. Uh, so we'll kind of dig right in now. Um, polio virus, uh, it is caused by a Picornae veridae virus. That's the family that it belongs to. Uh, it's also genus Enterovirus. Uh, poliomyelitis is exclusive just to humans. Uh, the disease isn't found in animals, and it's transmitted through the fecal-oral route. Can show, uh, you know, it's symptomatic uh, in some cases, but not a lot. The most common uh, manifestations are asymptomatic. But if you do have symptoms, it can be really severe. Uh, it can have a debilitating paralysis, and it can also lead to death depending on which parts of the body it actually affects. It uh, should be noted there are three different serotypes of poliovirus. There's uh, type 1, 2, and 3, uh, aptly named. Uh, and just because you have immunity to one of these serotypes doesn't really produce immunity to the other serotypes. So it is possible to contract polio from more than one strain. Uh, luckily, polio is rapidly inactivated by heat, uh, formaldehyde, chlorine, and even ultraviolet light. So it doesn't really survive well outside of the host, which is good. Uh, so you're kind of wondering how is it spread? So I said earlier, uh, fecally orally is how it's spread most likely. Uh, the virus usually shows up in the feces first when trying to test for it, but can also be found in the nasopharyngeal sputum and other secretions that come from the nose. Uh, it's spread pretty rapidly in areas with poor sanitation, obviously if it's fecally orally spread, uh, and especially in the non-immune population. Uh, thankfully today it's been eradicated in almost the entire world. Uh, I'll get to that a little bit later as well, but 
prior to uh, vaccines coming out in the 1960s, it was actually I should say 50s and 60s when the vaccines first showed up. Uh, it was endemic in a lot of regions, and then it wound up becoming uh, epidemic in a lot of other regions, especially around the turn of the century, like the 1900s. Uh, virus is usually seen more often in the summer months uh, and in temperate regions. So they have these big temperature swings, uh, usually more common in the summer. Um, poliovirus, like I said, kind of can enter the oropharynx, so it usually enters the mouth. Uh, it multiplies in the tonsils and the lymph nodes. And then pyre patches, which are actually in the small intestine. And that's where you kind of get the, the fecal infection and kind of discharge. That's why it's still in the feces. Uh, incubation, anywhere from two days to 35 days. Uh, there is a hypothesis as well that sometimes the virus can enter the bloodstream and then can invade the tonsils that way as well. Uh, after about three to five days, the virus is actually shed in the stool. Uh, and then you can also, like I said, get throat swabs from patients as well. Um, so during this period, it can actually be asymptomatic or kind of a mild viremic symptoms. Uh, symptoms kind of self-limiting. You could get gastroenteritis, get some respiratory tract infections, uh, and influenza-like illnesses that can occur. Uh, the viremia usually goes away uh, once antibodies in the body start to attack it, uh, but it can spread to the central nervous system through the bloodstream as well. And it's usually this way, the afferent nerve pathway that's in the brain, the virus actually seems to have an affinity for. Uh, there's certain cell receptors that it actually clings to, and that's when it come, you know, becomes dangerous when it starts attacking the central nervous system or the brainstem. Uh, and it's usually this uh, cytopathic nature where the, uh, your body's own attack, attacking these cells, kind of uh, where it detects the virus, starts to denature these cells, and especially the axons. Brain cells are made up of, they kind of have uh, axons and dendrites, uh, and anytime any of those are compromised, you can start to have uh, real symptoms caused of the conduction. Essentially, it's electrical conduction. But if you don't have proper electrical conduction, that's where you end up seeing these deficits. And that's where these uh, you know, paralysis can happen and you have uh, severe nerve damage. Um, so when this happens in the spinal cord, it causes limb paralysis, which is one of the hallmark signs of kind of these uh, more debilitating poliomyelitis. Uh, in the brain, it might spread to what's called the posterior horn cells. Uh, these are also motor neuron uh, cells and also in the thalamus and hypothalamus. Um, there's a specific kind of uh, poliomyelitis called bulbar, bulbar uh, which I will get to uh, a little more in depth. And this is where the brain gets involved in the brain stem. This is what causes essentially uh, m more breathing issues than anything. The paralysis spreads to your diaphragm, you're not able to, to breathe, uh, and this caused uh, a lot of death uh, prior to the invention of the iron lung, which we'll talk about, as well as now we have ventilators we can put people on. Uh, so as I said before, these infected cells, what really causes a lot of that damage is this thing called phagocytosis, where these the macrophages, these great white blood cells that help destroy invaders, uh, they cause degeneration of those axons, those uh, neurological brain cells. I guess axons are not just in the brain, but uh, in your nervous system. And this is that causes that muscular atrophy and uh, paralysis. Uh, death is rare. Um, like I said, most cases are asymptomatic. I'll give you some numbers later on. 
Uh, so even in these uh, cases where you have involvement of the central nervous system, uh, it uh, isn't always deadly, very rarely deadly, but can cause that debilitation and can cause lifelong you know, paralysis of you know, one or more than one extremity. Uh, there's also something called post-polio syndrome, PPS. Now, some people who get it who are asymptomatic, uh, about 25 to 30 years after the initial attack, end up with a progressive muscle atrophy. And uh, this is just kind of the, the virus resurgence, <coughs> excuse me, attacking the body once again after kind of being dormant for a while. Uh, there's also this hypothesis that the presence of cytokines due to a persistent polio virus in the brain and spinal cord, because the virus is still there, uh, over time end up degenerating uh, these nerve cells and that causes this deterioration. One thing that is interesting about uh, polio is that it really didn't become an issue until the 1900s, uh, you know, early 18, or late 1800s, early 1900s. And there's a few uh, theories about this. Uh, it's thought that this is really when uh, cities became more developed, uh, more sanitary. Uh, you had uh, especially, you know, childbirth and uh, pertaining to bathing. Uh, there were a lot of kind of social uh, norms that changed then. And there's thought that uh, when children are really young, before the age of six months, they inherit their parents' antibodies. So there's a lot of thought that a lot of children were actually exposed to polio when they were younger, but they had antibodies from their parents uh, during this time. So they were able to create their own antibodies even after that. And that this, uh, this kind of helped prevent the spread of polio and even getting polio. It wasn't until uh, early 1900s and in uh, large cities usually where you would see these great epidemics that happened, including the United States. So it's kind of it, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think that the uh, more sanitary some place is, the less chance there is that you're going to end up uh, contracting one of these illnesses. But if you don't have pre-existing antibodies to it, uh, you're more likely probably to catch that. And like I said, we're you know in these situations, that's just one theory that's thrown out there because you really didn't see this. Uh, it was endemic in a lot of areas, and then became epidemic after that. So. Something that's kind of interesting, uh, one of those weird things just about immunity. Uh, so symptom-wise, as I mentioned before, uh, some cases are symptomatic, some aren't. And uh, clinical features usually classified from the severity of the symptoms. Um, about 95 cases are usually asymptomatic, though. Um, and then the ratio of asymptomatic to paralytic cases, they range anywhere from like 50 to 1 to 1,000 to 1 depending where you are. Um, so the kind of asymptomatic, or less symptomatic, I should say not asymptomatic version, is called abortive poliomyelitis. I don't know why. Uh, but this is the kind of mild viremic form. Um, this is about uh, 4 to 8% of all infections, so even a small number there, people who actually get this kind of, uh, see these kind of symptoms. Most people are asymptomatic. And as I mentioned, this is like gastroenteritis, uh, so probably diarrhea, uh, influenza-like illnesses, uh, aches, uh, headache, body aches, chills, some respiratory tract infections. This usually goes away after about a week. Um, 1% of these cases actually present as an aseptic meningitis, so it actually kind of infects the, uh, the meninges. Uh, and that can actually be something uh, that's also self-limiting. Uh, but it can cause severe muscle spasm of the neck, the back, and the lower limbs. 
Usually uh, takes about a week to 10 days for complete recovery from all of these, though. Uh, the most severe form, though, the, and this is the one that most people associate with polio, is a paralytic poliomyelitis. Uh, there are three forms of this, and these are only seen in 1% of all patients. So uh, with the paralytic poliomyelitis, uh, there's this progressive muscular weakness, you have joint deterioration, and then you have uh, increasing skeletal deformities as well. Uh, there's fatigue, and then minical, minimal physical activity, which also leads to deficits just in day-to-day -day functioning uh, and can lead to a lot more medical and health problems. Uh, so these three forms of the paralytic poliomyelitis. Uh, the first one is called spinal poliomyelitis. This is the most common. Uh, there's another one called bulbar. Bulbar. Such a problem with that word. Poliomyelitis. This is about 2% of all cases. And then there's a combination of the spinal and the bulbar poliomyelitis. Uh, and that accounts for about 19%. So uh, even with uh, in the rarity of the 1% of people who get this, uh, only about 20%, 21% have these really kind of debilitating forms. Um, with the bulbar poliomyelitis, this kind of has the maximum uh, chance of a fatality uh, just because there's brainstem involvement and the neurons in the brainstem. Uh, sometimes in children, it can actually present a little bit differently too. It's called a biphasic form. So there's this period where you have mild to moderate symptoms and then you have a little uh, kind of period of brief relief of symptoms where you don't have anything, usually about a week to 10 days. And then you wind up with this appearance of kind of asymmetrical paralysis of the limbs. Uh, eventually, the kind of flaccid paralysis where you really can't move at all is the hallmark of this. And then you lose these deep tendon reflexes. If you ever see, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see TV doctors doing exams, they'll have a little hammer and whack your knee. That's kind of, they're looking for deep tendon reflexes there. So uh, in all thorough neuro exams, they will do that. So these are lost with the poliomyelitis that affects uh, the central nervous system. Uh, with adolescents and adults, it's actually uh, more severe. There's more severe pain uh, and a higher chance of paralysis. Uh, still typically asymmetrical. Uh, patients don't experience any cognitive changes, though. So it's just really, uh, you know, issues in movement and mobility. Uh, the paralysis is usually permanent. There are cases uh, where recovery can occur uh, through kind of compensation by muscles that aren't affected. So if you have some muscles in your legs or arms that aren't completely affected, they can compensate by being able to move. Uh, you might not gain full function, but some function can be returned. So the case fatality rate for the paralytic polio, it's like 2 to 5% among children. It can be up to 15 to 30% among adolescents and adults. So definitely more deadly the older you get. Uh, and then it increases to about 25% to 75% if you have bulbar involvement. So if it's, like I said, if it's affecting your brainstem, uh, it becomes an issue with your ability to breathe. As mentioned before with the uh, post-polio syndrome, can be anywhere from, like I said, 25 to 30 years, might be 15 to 40 years, uh, but about 25 to 40 percent of those people who had polio as a child, and I should, I should have mentioned this is paralytic poliomyelitis, not the asymptomatic um, or the uh, abortive poliomyelitis. These are the people who kind of get that, uh, develop that new weakness or paralysis years after. So it, uh, even though, you know, may not have affected you while you were young, it can come back to cause some issues.
so how do we diagnose it? So uh, currently, uh, the best method we have is for uh, polymerase chain reaction that's used for testing of most viruses now. Uh, pretty fast, very effective, uh, very specific. So it's the best way to diagnose. Uh, usually taken from a stool sample. Uh, early enough, you can actually get it uh, from uh, nasopharyngeal. Uh, and CSF, your cerebral spinal fluid, sometimes can be isolated from there, um, but not always. Uh, it's also important that we do genetic sequencing of the viruses we get now. So anytime there is a positive polio case, they like to see specifically uh, the genetic makeup of it. It's, uh, they're trying to look at this because, you know, polio has almost been eradicated. But if you start having, you know, if you see the same kind of sequence pop up again, 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 uh, then, you know, there's kind of one strain. If there's multiple strains of polio with different genetic makeups popping up, then uh, a little more cause for concern because you could have multiple outbreaks. Uh, with different strains. Uh, it's also important to see if it's a strain that's actually had been endemic to a region or if it's a new strain that was kind of imported there from somewhere else. As far as treatments for polio, uh, you know, it's a virus, so there's no cure for it. Uh, a lot of the treatments in the past have been supportive, uh, pain management, uh, mechanical ventilation. I'll talk about the iron lung in a couple minutes here. That was a uh, one of the most uh, innovative inventions in medicine. This happened back in the early 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, and it was huge, especially for polio, because it caused, like I said, a lot of issues with respiratory drive. Uh, your diaphragm stops working. Um, vaccines, though. Vaccines are really what uh, kind of turned everything around. Um, Jonas Salk was a major contributor to that. Uh, I'll mention him in a couple minutes here. Uh, but... Uh, Vaccines help to essentially eradicate polio worldwide. That doesn't mean they're not without risk. Um, there are still cases of polio that pop up that are vaccine-derived polioviruses. It's usually really, really low numbers uh, for the amount of people who are actually vaccinated that will end up getting polio from the virus. And we actually have, a, as of 2020, uh, a much better uh, oral poliovirus, which was usually the main uh, contributor to these incidents of vaccine-related virus uh, contraction. Uh, as I said, the majority of these cases came from the poliovirus, uh, oral poliovirus vaccine. So that was, uh, and that's uh, poliovirus serotype 2 was most common. Uh, other vaccines protected uh, injectable vaccines against the other serotypes 1 and 3. Um, and these vaccines against serotypes 1 and 3, uh, there are actually a lot more genetic mutations in those than from the wild polio strain. So I guess I'll try and explain this a little bit better. So with those serotypes 1 and 3, um, the way the vaccines were constructed, they are so far away from the original polio virus that it would take a, a great deal of mutation for those to be able to get back to the point where they can infect somebody. Uh, with poliovirus serotype 2 with that vaccine, it was a closer relative genetically, so it was easier for mutations to happen that would give it the uh, ability to actually become infective again. Uh, and that's kind of why they, you know, the oral poliovirus with that serotype 2 was causing the most issues. Uh, again, these are really, really unlikely, don't happen a lot, but it is seen. Uh, and that's kind of where a lot of when people are test positive for poliovirus, it's typically 
vaccine related because there are multiple strains that have been eradicated, which I will talk about in just a couple of moments. Um, with that oral polio vaccine, uh, so you get these vaccine-associated paralytic polio myelitis. Uh, for every million doses of the oral polio vaccine, uh, they're recorded between about 1 to 25, I know it's a broad number, 1 to 25 cases of vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis, so not a huge number anyway. Uh, there's also immune deficiency-associated vaccine-derived poliovirus, otherwise known as IVDPVs. Uh, these come from people who have primary primary immunodeficiencies, so even with the vaccine, they weren't well enough protected and wound up getting polio. And then there's another uh, circulating vaccine-derived poliovirus. Uh, these have uh, been transmitted between people in the community. Uh, there are kind of stipulating measures for this, though. So uh, they have to be found in multiple individuals who aren't direct contacts. Uh, they have to be from an individual and an environmental sample separately or from two environmental samples, excuse me, from different sites or at different times. So the circulating vaccine-derived poliovirus has something like, they can't really, it's harder to trace back, I think, because it's coming from different sources. But uh, these are the types that can actually spread in the community and cause new outbreaks. Um, there's also uh, ambiguous vaccine-derived poliovirus,es or AVDPVs. Uh, this is where there isn't any evidence that they came from any people who have immunodeficiencies or any evidence that they've been transmitted between people in the community. So kind of that third outlier of, you know, where to come from. Uh, so with these kind of vaccine-associated uh, poliovirus infections, uh, these are the most common. Um, Wild-type poliovirus serotype 2 was actually last reported in 1999. It's believed to have been eradicated since then. Uh, which is why we're seeing more of these kind of, like I said, they revert back from that oral vaccine that was given. Because of this, in 2016, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative recommended that countries who have oral vaccines that contain all three serotypes actually just switch to oral vaccines that, that only contain serotype 1 and 3. Uh, along with this, they kind of recommended that countries using inactivated poliovirus vaccines for serotype 2 instead of the oral because it doesn't have the same risk of mutating or regaining that, uh, that virulence that, that uh, the orals have. Um, you know, there are trade-offs with this. Uh, the oral vaccines are actually a lot cheaper and they were easy to administer than some of these uh, injectable vaccines. Uh, so some of these countries that uh, don't have higher quality health care or the resources would end up hurting from this. But uh, in 2020, uh, they actually came up with a new vaccine. Uh, it's an oral poliovirus vaccine for serotype 2 that has been modified and it, uh, it's just more genetically stable uh, than the original. So it's a lot less likely it's going to revert and gain that uh, neurovirulence. Um, and these vaccines, they're cheaper, they're easy to administer, uh, and they'll, you know, be accessible to these kind of underdeveloped countries. Should also be mentioned that herd immunity is incredibly important. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know what herd immunity is, after you reach a certain number of your population who end up with either, if they've been vaccinated or just natural immunity from having the disease at some point, uh, the disease no longer has a 
good pool to actually infect, and it winds up dying out because of that. Um, there were hopes with COVID that that would eventually happen, but because all the, you know, we had the different strains of COVID with uh, variants, Omicron, Delta, it just didn't kind of happen that way. There were a lot of people that were hoping it would, but didn't. But with these other viruses, you see like measles with polio, uh, herd immunity actually plays a huge factor in it. Uh, and it's, you know, among those people who actually get the polio vaccine, only about 95% will develop full immunity from it. So it's important that depending where you live, that people are vaccinated uh, so you can gain that herd immunity. Um, it's also important to understand the population, um, the vaccine, you know, where the vaccine fails. Um, that's where this herd immunity helps to kind of play a part too. So that even if you end up failing with that, other people who have the antibodies, if you have enough of them, will help protect you from that. Uh, it should be noted that vaccines, you know, it's as we've seen recently, uh, not always accepted. Um, people were incredibly divided over the last couple of years about getting them. Uh, when these first came out in the 50s and 60s, there were also there were issues. It was not without controversy. Um, there was one particular batch that came out. Uh, that saw over 200 people die afterwards from it uh, because it was just incorrectly mixed. Um, but Elvis Presley uh, was actually vaccinated on television uh, on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956, uh, helping to kind of trump up support just for polio eradication. Uh, it's, you know, obviously I wasn't alive then, but from what I've been reading, polio is pretty much the most feared disease for a long time in the country. Not because it necessarily meant you were going to die, but uh, it could definitely lead to debilitation uh, and just, uh, you know, um, definitely deficits uh, in day-to-day -day life. Uh, and then there was always, you know, of course, the death associated with it. So uh, as far as other treatments for it, uh, the iron lung. So in 1928, uh, there was a Harvard professor. There were two of them. There was Philip Drinker and Lewis... Agassiz Shaw, and they invented the iron lung. So, a thing of legend. Uh, working in medicine right now, I couldn't even imagine what it was like. These things were gigantic to take up, you know, the better part of a room. We have ventilators now, which are great. Uh, they're small. They do all the work uh, the iron lung would do, uh, and even better. Uh, so, the way an iron lung worked, think of a giant tube. Uh, I think they had a little window. I know they had an area where your head would poke up and it would close. And it essentially, the way the lung works with negative pressure and breathing in and out, uh, it would kind of do all the work of the lung by pressurizing and depressurizing uh, this tube that you're in. It would do the breathing for you. So it would decrease the pressure inside of it and then to induce an inhalation and then return to normal outside pressure just to induce exhalation. Uh, a lot of people didn't have to spend more than a few weeks in these, but some people had to spend their entire life, uh, however long that was, in this iron lung, depending on the severity of your polio and depending on uh, recovery. So, pretty crazy. Uh, in 1931, a gentleman named John Emerson, he actually managed to construct an iron lung at half the cost uh, than the original iron lung. Uh, Obviously, uh, Philip Drinker took exception to this. Uh, he filed a lawsuit against him. Uh, in court, though, Mr. Drinker did not win. Uh, Emerson, with the uh, kind of arguing that life-saving devices should be made available to as many people as possible uh, at as uh, low a cost as possible without financial gain, won this suit. Uh, 
uh, and they were actually able to kind of create those iron lungs uh, more cost effectively and they were really really popular uh, throughout the 30s and even beyond that. Uh, wasn't completely inexpensive though. Uh, in the 1930s it was about 1500 US dollars which uh, nowadays probably be around 30 grand. So not cheap machines, but uh, you know they help keep people alive uh, short term and long term. So pretty important. So a little epidemiology, um, kind of the global decline of polio has been something that uh, since vaccines has been really important. In 1988 though, the World Health Assembly, uh, who is kind of the, the governing board of the WHO, uh, launched a global polio eradication initiative. And their task was to eradicate polio by the year 2000. So uh, a 12-year period, pretty lofty. Um, polio was still endemic in about 125 countries in 1988. So to kind of get that uh, down to being zero was just a very lofty task, but uh, not completely unattainable. Uh, this initiative was brought upon by the WHO, but it also involved UNICEF, uh, the US CDC, uh, Rotary International, and uh, our friends Bill and Melinda Gates, their foundation, also pitched in on this one. Uh, since its inauguration, uh, it's kind of offered routine immunization programs to governments, uh, as well as national immunization days. So typically children will receive two doses of oral vaccine four to eight weeks apart, uh, regardless of their immunization history. And then they also have an outbreak response immunization programs. So these programs, uh, any children below the age of five in the vicinity of a detected case of polio can actually receive one oral dose as well. And they also have something called the mopping up immunization programs. Uh, these kind of programs were uh, for under five-year-olds who were in these outbreak-prone areas. They visited their homes uh, and they would actually come to their house and kind of give them the doses one month apart. So really trying to protect the younger kids, get them vaccinated to create those antibodies. Uh, still hasn't been completely eradicated, but very, very close. Here we are in 2022. Uh, it's about 99.99% eradicated, and two of the three serotypes are eradicated right now. Uh, the Americas were the first world region to be certified free, and that was in 1994. Uh, the WHO, they kind of, they don't do it country by country. Uh, they'll do it by global areas and uh, to be certified polio free you have to meet certain criteria so you have to have no wild indigenous polio case for at least three years you have to have a reliable surveillance system in place and you have to prove its capacity to actually detect and respond to uh, these polio cases or imported polio cases as of uh, last year 2021 there were actually only three countries where wild polio virus were detected, uh, and that was Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Malawi. Uh, until recently, uh, there were those three strains, but as I mentioned before, uh, polio virus serotypes two and three have been eradicated. So um, I know you heard me earlier say that serotype two, people that was from vaccines though, so not the wild type. Um, I should have said, so wild type is just like the original like type of virus, the OG virus. Uh, man-made vaccines that come out um, sometimes with uh, attenuated or dead viruses can actually revert back to viruses but those are the vaccine associated so 
the last case of serotype 2 was seen in 1999, and the last case of serotype 3 was seen in 2012. So uh, they were declared globally eradicated in 2015 and 2019 because they have to have that uh, per the WHO, uh, those designations, uh, like three years or whatever it is. Uh, all reported cases since 2013 of wild polioviruses have just been that serotype one. So that's kind of the one that's lingering and hanging about. So uh, in the early 1980s, just to kind of, you know, I know a lot of people think back to polio and how it was, you know, 50s, 60s, even before that was dangerous. Even in the 1980s, it was still a really dangerous virus. There were about 300,000 to 400,000 people had uh, paralytic polio every year. Um, but compared to 2020, uh, there were only 1,873 cases, so a huge drop. Uh, so if you think about it just uh, in perspective, in the 1980s, the world saw more cases in one week than you see an entire year now. So uh, really doing a great job getting rid of polio, keeping it uh, you know, eradicated. Um, technically, the U.S. eliminated it in 1978. Uh, there are some recorded cases back in the 80s, but these were imported cases, cases that didn't pop up uh, here in the U.S. Um, they were brought in. Uh, and this is also true for other countries that just recently received a polio-free status, India and Nigeria especially. Um, it's, uh, they've had issues with that as well. Uh, as far as how polio has kind of affected just the way we treat other viruses and other illnesses in general, it's actually been used as a pretty big model, uh, especially for viruses, just because we have so much research data on it, um, physical data, chemical data, uh, properties, you know, viral properties, uh, vaccination histories, and it's actually really, it's, it's easy to compare it to other viruses and how to actually maybe attack other viruses and get rid of them. Um, so, in as far as the history of polio, so like I said, it, it was really endemic, so it wasn't affecting a lot of people until about the, you know, early 1900s. But there are, looking back in history, we'll do a little history here, there are Egyptian paintings that go all the way back to 1403 BC, which depict children with deformed limbs walking with sticks. I mean, that could be, you know, a multitude of things, but there are a lot of people who think that polio, you know, has been around for that long. Uh, in 1789, it was actually an English physician uh, named Michael Underwood who gave the first kind of clinical descriptions uh, of polio, he referred to it as debility of the lower extremities. Uh, and polio, it was known as Hein-Medin disease um, due to the contributions of another physician named Jacob Hein and his partner Carl Oscar Medin in the 1840s. So, uh, you know, hundreds of years people have been diagnosing it. It was never, you know, an epidemic uh, until the 1900s. Uh, but prior to that, uh, it had definitely been, you know, witnessed and known in medical literature. Uh, it should be noted that when these epidemics started happening in the 1900s, it became a huge issue. Uh, in June 1916, uh, U.S. public health authorities in Brooklyn actually uh, recognized the existence of an epidemic of polio. Uh, this was due to more than 27,000 patients reported, uh, and the fatality rate was huge. There were 6,000 people who died in the country that year, uh, and there were 2,000 of those alone just in New York City. So it became a huge issue in New York. Uh, and then it just kept growing and growing. Um, the peak occurred kind of in the 1940s and 1950s. And it was a 
kind of given the moniker the wrath of God. So uh, there was a lot of panic. Um, people had to quarantine their kids all the time, a lot of anxiety about getting it. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that a lot of anxiety for COVID, um, which thankfully has been, you know, it's still out there, uh, still a problem, but isn't as bad as it could have been or people thought it might be. I mean, polio, uh, the extent of epidemic, uh, you know, with the anxiety was probably right up there. So, but uh, thanks to Salk and Sabin and their vaccines, uh, they actually saved a lot of lives and helped to kind of, like I said, pretty much eradicate this Uh I was doing a little research on that, and I guess there were over 100,000 monkeys that were actually killed testing these polio vaccines. So, uh, you know, medical research sometimes isn't always pretty, but uh, the end result, uh, you know, can save a lot of lives, even if you have to kill a lot of monkeys to get there. Uh, also should mention uh, Dr. David Bodian. Uh, he kind of helped to describe the actual pathogenesis of the disease, as well as the three uh, serotypes that we know of today. Um, you know, looking at the history of this, so, you know, cases of polio, they decreased from about 58,000 to 5,600 in just a year's time after the start of these vaccines back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And then by 1961, there were only 161 cases actually recorded. So, uh, like I said, the last case of paralytic polio here in the U.S. was in 1979, uh, at least of the wild type. Uh, there are famous people as well. Who have had polio, a lot of them. Uh, I'll, I'll rattle off a few. So for millennials and you younger kids, you're probably not going to recognize any of these names. Uh, people in my generation, even people in my generation, some of these people are old. But like I said, I mean, you, you're thinking back, you know, to the who was affected back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, and a lot of these were kids back then. Um, they're in their 70s and 80s now. So. Uh, here we go, let's rattle them off. Uh, artist Frida Kahlo, uh, Mia Farrow, uh, Alan Alda, he's, he's an actor. Donald Sutherland, he's an actor. Uh, singers Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, uh, and director Francis Ford Coppola, all uh, had polio at one point. None of them suffered from uh, severe debilitation, but probably the most you know, famous person, at least in the United States, who had polio was uh, FDR, little Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, and his was actually, uh, he was diagnosed when he was 39 years old. So he was diagnosed in 1921. And uh, he said he used to have memories as a child falling down a lot. So there's a good chance that he kind of had uh, that recurring uh, form of polio. And it affected him. So if you look at a lot of speeches that he did, um, some of the speeches that are actually videotaped, he's sitting down, he's in his wheelchair. Um, he was eventually able to regain uh, some of his movement and able to walk with crutches and braces. Uh, he contributed that to uh, uh, swimming and uh, just other physical therapy. So it is, you know, like I said, it is possible even uh, people who are affected to regain some of that muscle function. But uh, FDR, definitely the most famous. And uh, he actually, in 1926, uh, he commissioned the first modern rehabilitation center dedicated to patients with polio. So it's, it's interesting how when somebody has an illness, uh, who's in, you know, who has a great deal of power, how can it, it can affect the way the disease is treated and uh, people are treated who have that disease. So with that said, you know, the whole reason I wanted to do this is there have been a few reports of polio in the news today. So uh, recently, I shouldn't even say today, the last couple of months. 
these cases have actually popped up in New York. So uh, there was one case in Rockland County, one case in Orange County, and then there was a case in New York City, uh, multiple cases actually in New York City. Uh, these were detected by wastewater surveillance, uh, and they are actually different. So um, kind of the findings that link the virus uh, to the Rockland County patient uh, is actually different, um, but is similar to other cases that popped up in other parts of the, the world. So uh, there's been detection in London and Jerusalem as well, and polio virus is popping up. Um, with regard to the case in New York City, though, uh, it's interesting when, you know, over the last few years, there's kind of been a, a pushback from some patients to get their kids vaccinated. Uh, there was a, a debunked research paper that came out years ago that linked vaccines to autism, and it's complete nonsense. Uh, you can look, at, look it up, research it. It's, it's been, like I said, it's been debunked. Um, there is no evidence, no data to support that kids who receive vaccines are more likely to become autistic. Uh, and it actually, it's, it was a huge disservice, uh, not only just to the medical community, but just to patient, like parents, I should say, in general, who should get their kids vaccinated. Um, you know, your MMR and polio, really important. Uh, to that point, in New York City, only 86.2% of kids uh, ages six months to five years have all three doses of their polio vaccine. Uh, and that's even lower in some neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods only have vaccine coverage of about 70%. So, you know, where I was talking about earlier with herd immunity, the herd immunity is there. Uh, you know, most adults will have it. Almost all kids will have it. But you're going to start seeing more and more of these cases of people, uh, can, you know, getting polio and having it pop up uh, and being spread. Because if you have someone, even if they get it from, you know, like I said, the oral the oral vaccines are better now. Uh, chances are really low, but if you have somebody who gets it from an oral vaccine and they come in contact with somebody who isn't vaccinated, who has no immunity, and they get it, it can become pretty severe. So um, the chance of epidemics extremely low probably won't happen. But we're trying to eradicate this disease, so uh, you know it, it's important to get you know your kids vaccinated. I don't have any kids, don't have a dog in the fight, but you know just from a medical standpoint, I would recommend that you do that. Uh, there are also uh, other nations uh, recently that had new cases, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, and Yemen. Uh, the DRC, they actually had nine cases of uh, vaccine-derived polio virus uh, type 2 uh, in three different provinces there, and that's a total of like 73 for the year. Um, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of cases in the DRC. Uh, Mozambique, uh, they reported one case of, uh, it's actually vaccine-derived type 1, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they've only had two this year. And then Yemen had 26 cases of uh, polio type. It's also the, the serotype 2 from oral vaccines in seven different locations. They've had 80 for 2022. So some of these other countries, you know, even though people, the population is probably pretty well vaccinated, they're still having uh, polio pop up here and there. Uh, and it's happening more frequently. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, I did mention the mortality earlier. Not super high. I mean, I guess it, it's high depending on the type of poliomyelitis that you get. The, you know, like I said, the bulbar involvement uh, definitely raises that up. Um, so we're going to do our death count now. Not super impressive. And these numbers are, I don't know, 
they're they're probably not correct. They're a little bit skewed. I'm gonna do the best I can with the data that I have uh, and try and figure it out. It could be more, it could be less. Uh, and I'm not including, you know, a lot of people have probably died because of their disabilities that they kind of have from or had from polio. So, but we're gonna go pre-eradication here. So. Uh, I'm gonna take kind of, so the data from 1980 had an average of 300,000 cases per year. So I'm gonna take that number. Um, only about 1% of those will be paralytic poliomyelitis. Uh, so we get 3,000. And only about 20% of those are gonna have bulbar or spinal bulbar polio. And those are the kind of the more deadly ones with higher mortality. So we get about 600 probable deaths just from that CNS and paralysis um, per year. So if we take that, um, and then we'll take kind of, let's go back all the way to those first kind of recorded cases uh, in Egypt in 1403 BC. And we'll go all the way up to essentially the eradication in the US um, in 1979. That's uh, 338, sorry, 3,382 years. So that's a total of 2,029,200 deaths. So we'll take our, our death count, we take the average height uh, of a human being that's five foot five inches. Uh, we will multiply that by our 2,029,200 deaths. We get 10,991,500 feet or about 2,081.7 miles. So as we always try to do, we're going to shoot for the moon here. Let's try and reach the moon. So the moon is 2,000, sorry, 238,900 miles away. Uh, we would only get 0.0087% uh, of the way to the moon. So couldn't really stack our dead head to toe too high. Um, well, I guess relative speaking. Uh, if we're trying to reach the top of the Empire State Building, so that's uh, a total of 1,454 feet tall, we could actually reach that uh, 7,559 times. So we'd have a lot of Empire State Building dead people. Uh, if we want to try and circle the Earth, uh, the Earth has a circumference of uh, 24,901 miles. Would actually only get about 8% of the way around. So not a you know completely underwhelming number, but not huge. Uh, not a gigantic total, but like I said, uh, you know, polio at its peak was pretty deadly. Other than that, though, when it was endemic, there weren't a lot of deaths from it. Um, you know, there have always been people with disability from it, the paralysis uh, and permanent paralysis. But uh, we've been pretty lucky with the invention of vaccines uh, to be able to distribute those vaccines and just, you know, emerging modern medicine, uh, just getting rid of polio, because it could have been a lot worse. I mean, if vaccines had never been invented and polio was still around and circulating, uh, with the world's population and population centers that we have now, it could continue to just have terrible epidemics. But um, Polio was gonzo, pretty much, 99.99% eradicated, uh, but it is something to watch, something in the news. You don't hear about it that often. You do think about it kind of as a not really antiquated disease, but something that isn't, isn't mentioned a lot because it just isn't there. Um, it's, you know, it considered eradicated in a lot of places, but not completely. So it's, it's good to think about that, as, you know, with any of these microorganisms. You know, as much as you think you can destroy it completely, uh, even with something like smallpox, which I talked about, there are still samples of smallpox around, you know, in those level four laboratories, which could obviously be used uh, in, as biological weapons or just if, you know, there's some weird breach and it gets out. So, um, 
as my microbiology professor once told me, it's, it's a microbes world. We're just living in it. So with that, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, like I said, give me some feedback if you want. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all my new listeners. I appreciate it. Um, thoughts, suggestions, give me a shout. Uh, and remember, please wash your hands. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, that sounds good. I'll have that.